Well, today we look for a second time at one of the stranger stories to us, at least, in the Bible. That's Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar. And we hope and expect for it to say something to us that would change us from the inside out. And particularly, what we'll hear this week, what I believe the Lord wants to say to us through this text this week, is one of those messages that if we in the whole city of Greenwood, Indiana, could grasp it, would just change things for us. We have been praying that the Lord would draw near to our church and pour out his spirit upon us and then pour out his spirit on the nearby area and bring many people to Christ. And if he were to do that, what we are stumbling on this morning is one of those truths we would recover, one of those truths that would become great in our heart, Uh, one of those truths that would wake up those of us who are kind of sleeping in our faith. I believe Greenwood is a place that is full of many earnest Christians, and that is why we have prospered for a long time, one reason we've prospered for a long time. However, it's also full of many Christians who we might say are are sleepy or tired in our faith, who don't have the the zeal that we once had for our Lord, uh, and who sense the temptations of other fun things to do on Sunday morning and say, I I think I'd just rather get that good campsite. And what I've been praying for so long is that the Lord would take those who claim they are Christians but are not, that he would take them to Christ, and that he would take Christians who are earnest but are sleepy and wake us up, and then for those of us that are alive in our faith would give us more and more zeal, and the truth we want to recover and look at today I think could help us do that. Before we get to it, let me give you the backstory here. Uh, Genesis at this point is the story of one family that at this point is growing, And this family right now represents the the kingdom of God. Uh, One way you could describe the whole Bible, the story of the whole thing, is it's the story of the kingdom of God coming to earth. Uh, First, very small. Uh, First, Adam and Eve were there in, in harmony with God, and his kingdom was there on earth, as he said, Adam, Eve, have dominion over earth. And there we were, ruling the earth as God's kings. But as we rebelled against him, we, we were cast out of that kingdom. And yet even then, the Lord promised Eve, one of your descendants will be a mighty savior king who will crush the head of the serpent and make everything right. And so then it says people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And right there is like a a tiny mustard seed of God's kingdom. There are God's people in God's place, living under God's ways, seeking God, and that's his kingdom. Uh, And then in the course of time, that that seed is passed down, and then a man named Abraham is told, your son, one of your sons will be that mighty Savior King, one of your descendants after you. And then his son Isaac receives the same promise, and his son Jacob after him. And now Jacob has 12 sons, and so these 12 brothers now are going to be the 12 tribe of Israel, which will one day be a visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth, ruling under a king, God's people, under God's king, living under God's ways and God's place. And then as Jesus Christ comes, he brings the kingdom of heaven with him. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and all who by faith in him come in are brought into the kingdom and those who are in Israel who will not trust him are cast out of the kingdom. And he leaves and says, I'm coming back and when I come back, I'm going to set up my kingdom here on earth. And so We wait for the return of our King Jesus, and his kingdom is now spread all across the world, and we meet even now as an outpost of that kingdom. So what now is a big tree all over the world, you might say a mustard tree that is so large that the birds of the earth are coming and taking shade under it, was here in the book of Genesis, a little mustard seed, 
real small, one family, 12, 12 brothers and their families, the kingdom of God. And the one who is at this point due to inherit leadership in that kingdom is this man, Judah. And the story is revolving around, is he really going to be the one to inherit it? And if so, who is his heir going to be? Who's going to be after him? Because one of these days from this line is going to come that mighty Savior King, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to come. But who is he going to come through? Who gets to be the ancestors of the one we know as Jesus Christ? Judah's due to inherit all of this, uh, but in the beginning of the story, he's going to forsake that. He's going to leave, and he's going to go off into Canaan and live. And we see then what happens to him and what happens to his heir after him. Let's read Genesis 38. It happened in the, at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you will give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the colt prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. 
You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name is called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Every word we just read is the words of the Lord, and if you are a Christian, you need to know why that story is in your Bible. Now, a lot of times in the book of Genesis, we learn different lessons by following different characters through the story, and this story is no exception to that. So last week, we looked at Judah and what we can learn from him. Today, we look at Tamar and her two sons to ask, what can we learn from them? And what the Spirit does through their role in, his, in this story is they hold high what Jesus calls the pearl of great price in the scriptures. They hold high the value of the kingdom of God and show us just how valuable it is that we have been brought into this kingdom. Now, you may wonder, how do we get there from a story that is as strange as this? And it will take me time to get you from the story to there. Remember what we talked about a moment ago, though? Uh, What now is God's kingdom growing as the church on earth? And what will one day be God's kingdom here on earth as Jesus comes back? Now you could say that's the mustard tree version in the book of Genesis. It's the mustard seed version, right? These 12 brothers and their families, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, So we are seeing here pictures of the kingdom of God. But what do we learn about it? Well, let's follow Tamar and see. Now, we have seen Judah kind of forsake that promise from his father, right? His father's been given great promises by God. He says, I'm going to leave that and I'm going to go here in Canaan and live here instead. I'll live by my way instead of the Lord's ways. And at this point, Tamar comes into the story. She comes in as Judah's daughter-in-law. He has raised three sons, two of them we presume are of marriable age now, and he gives the first one in marriage to this woman named Tamar. Uh, But we see pretty quickly in verse 7 that Ur, her husband, is a very wicked man in God's sight. And so the Lord does something that we haven't seen him do since the flood, and that is put somebody to death just for their wickedness. So we can imagine already this woman has had a pretty terrible plight, right? She's been married to a terrible man, and we just wonder what this marriage would be like. What happens next in verse 8 is an ancient custom called leveret marriage. Uh, This is one of a few things that make this story sound so strange to us. Uh, It worked like this. In the ancient world, people were, I would almost say, obsessed with having babies and which one of those babies was their heir. Your line after you is what mattered in life. 
If in our world, what matters in life is finding your authentic self and expressing it truly or finding the good life and living it, if that's what people in the States are chasing after, people in the ancient world were chasing after how great of a line will come after me. Will I inherit dad's estate and how great of a kingdom can I pass it down to? That's what they cared about. And so women in that day wanted to have children and lots of strong children more than they wanted anything else. So for a woman to marry the firstborn in a family means that by rights, she gets to mother the heir of this family, right? So that's a very high place of honor for her. If then that husband dies and leaves her childless, well, that's just about the worst thing that can happen to an ancient woman. Now she has no one to provide for her, no way to have children and feel fulfilled in life, And she's lost that opportunity to bear the heir of the family and thus receive great honor as the mother of the head of the family. And so they developed this custom called leveret marriage. And what would happen is if a brother died and and he and his wife had not had any children yet, uh, the next born brother would then marry her and receive her as a wife. And his duty was to provide children for his brother. The children that he had through this wife would not be his but would be his brother's children legally. So this produces an heir and continues the line going on. This is the duty that Judah tells his son Onan to do. Take this woman as a wife, provide offspring for your brother, he says. Onan hears this. He evidently marries the woman. And what we see is that he catches on to the fact that the child, if he goes through with it, won't be his child, right? Now, you look at this from Onan's eyes for a minute. He has been the second-born son his whole life, which means his brother's going to inherit everything. But wait, now my brother's gone. So now I'm the firstborn, right? So now who's going to inherit everything? Me, right? It's a great opportunity. But if I am the father of this child and the child is really my brother's, then everything in the family goes down to that child and not to me. So his duty is to work himself out of receiving this inheritance by providing a child for his brother. So what he does then, because he knows the child won't be his, he knows then the inheritance won't be his and he will lose all of it, uh, he pretends to do the duty. He evidently marries the woman. He goes into her. They live a married life together. And he enjoys her, uses her for pleasure, but he refuses to finish the act and provide the child. And you can read just exactly how he does that right there in the text. This brings shame upon her. Probably shames her very much in the moment, I would imagine. And then as she seems unable to have children, but he's the one refusing to do the part, brings even more shame upon her. So the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees Onan doing this. And he says, no, that, that's wicked. You're doing wrong by this woman. And so the Lord puts him to death as well. Now we see a subpoint in that that I don't want to make much of, but there may be a few of you who need it, and if you do, latch on to it. Uh, many times people who are, are victims of really heinous crimes, especially women victims of heinous crimes, uh, you wind up wondering, where was God there? Like, did, did God see that? Does God care what happened to me? And we can see very plainly in this text, what this man did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So did the Lord see it? Yes, he did. And what he saw was wicked in his eyes. And he remembered what Onan had done. 
So we have a very clear answer there to anybody who was wondering, did God see what happened to me? Will God remember what happened to me? Is God just? And the answer is yes. Now, I won't go into detail on that, but if you need that, lay hold of it. God sees whatever it was that happened to you. At this point, though, Tamar has now been twice bereaved. She has had two wicked husbands. We would say two difficult marriages to wicked husbands. And both of them have died, and she still has no child. So there's one more son in Judah's family. And so now the right thing for Judah to do is to give this son to her. Uh, Judah instead says to her, okay, he's not quite old enough yet. So why don't you go back to your father's house? I don't want you in my house. Go back to your father's house. Wait for my son to grow up, and then we'll arrange a marriage for the two of you. So she leaves. She goes back to her father's house. Judah, meanwhile, does not intend to give this third son to her. He is afraid that his third son will die as well because he thinks the whole thing is her fault. So getting nice and complicated here. The thing we're starting to wonder, though, is if I'm Tamar and I've just gotten my out out of this family, I don't know about you, but I'm going to take it, right? Like two wicked men that she was married to, both of them the Lord took care of, Judah's not a great guy as a father-in-law, and he's like, here's your out. You can go back to your father's house. Now she can go marry anybody she wants to. Uh, she could, in that culture, have become a cult prostitute as well. And then plenty of things she could have done. If she wanted children, there were many ways she could have done that, even marrying someone else. That's what I would do in her situation. But what she does next is what's kind of puzzling to us. She tries to work her way back in to the family, into this family that's mistreated her. So what happens is uh, she learns that in the course of time, Judah's wife has died. Uh, he has been comforted. His son has grown up. His son is, she, she's not married to the son, and so that's not going to work out. She realizes she's not going to have a way back in that way. And so Judah is coming to town, and so she disguises herself. Uh, she no longer has the widow's garments on. She covers her face. Uh, Judah thinks that she's a prostitute, and so he propositions her. Uh, and so they have this very transactional, very cold-sounding negotiation, and it ends with him giving to her as a pledge for the payment his signet, his cord, and his staff, which are basically like his identifying items. It would be like your driver's license, your phone, and the password to your phone, right? Like authority to your whole kingdom all handed right over. Now, he can't get those items back until he pays her with the lamb that's coming from the flock. But what she does then instead is she leaves and has his identifying items, right? This is all that she wanted. She wanted proof that if a child comes from this union, it's his child. Now she's got it in her hand. So three months later, Judah gets word that she's been immoral and she is pregnant by her immorality. And he, in callous heartlessness, says, burn her, take her to be burned, right? And she's going out to be executed for her immorality. And she produces the signet, the cord, and the staff and says, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. This proves that the child she has conceived is Judah's heir. And she gets what she was rightfully hers from the whole time, to be the mother of Judah's heir. She's done it. It's proven to her. And sure enough, when the greater heir of Judah is born, Jesus Christ, 
she is named as one of his ancestors, one of only five women that are named in the genealogy. Uh, Perez and Zerah came from Judah through Tamar, it says. So it makes you wonder, why did she want back in this family? And why did she go to such great lengths to get back into this family? This is wild, this plan that she concocts. And yet, she's gotten back in, and now she is named as an ancestor of Jesus Christ. You, you have to start wondering, did, did she know the value of being part of this family? Had she maybe, like, heard the stories, you know, the Lord appeared to my great-grandfather Abraham, and then to my grandfather Isaac, and then to my father Jacob. These people told the stories all the time, and she heard it all and gathered enough to know that being a part of this family means having the blessings of God and the promises of God that we were given. How much did she understand the value of what she was giving as she came into this family? Well, we aren't told, but here she is in a long list of people who seem to be pressing their way into the kingdom, bound and determined to get into the kingdom, even though they don't fully understand what it is. And that factor is multiplied in the next part of the story. It comes time for her to have the baby, but surprise, it's not one baby, two babies, it's twins. Now, we've had twins before in Genesis, right? Jacob and Esau. And what did Jacob and Esau do in the womb, right? They fought with each other. And then one came out grasping the other one's heel like they were wrestling to get out of the womb first and be the one to inherit whatever precious thing it is that this family has, as if they knew that something good was coming to the air. Well, now these twins are born, and a very similar strange thing happens. One of them sticks an arm out. The midwife wraps a scarlet cord, ties it around the arm, and says, okay, that marks the firstborn. This one came out first. But then that one pulls its arm back in, and the other one cuts in line and comes out first. Like these two are just racing to get out of the womb. And the midwife says, what a breach you've made for yourself, and names him Perez, which means a a breach. And then the one with the scarlet cord comes out, and his name is Zara. So which one is the firstborn? I don't know, and it doesn't really even clarify which one is really the firstborn. The midwife at one point seemed to think that it was the one who got the arm out, but which one in the end? I don't know. Here we have then two babies who can't possibly understand what it means to be the heir in this family. They're unborn babies, and yet they are racing to get out of the womb to be the one who is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. So we've got Jacob and Esau fighting to get out first, and then fighting for their whole lives to try to be that one. And then we've got Tamar and this strange plan that she concocts to get her way back into the kingdom. We've even got Onan, who placed at least a high value on being the heir in the kingdom, though he went about it in a very wicked way. And now we have two babies who are racing to get out first and be the one to inherit whatever this thing is that this family has before it's even revealed the mysteries of God and what it is that this family has. They can't possibly know that they are fighting to be ancestors of Jesus Christ, and yet they are behaving as if they know just what they are fighting for. And so what we're seeing there 
is that this kingdom that we have been brought into is so valuable, has such a strong magnetic draw that even before the Lord reveals his mysteries, even when it's in a seed form like this and no one really knows what is going on just yet, babies are racing out of the womb to be the one who gets to inherit this kingdom. Now we're seeing something of how valuable this kingdom is that we have been given. And so what we learn from the strange story of Tamar, of Perez, and Zerah is that entrance into the kingdom of God is more valuable than we could ever appreciate. They might not have said the words, but they were fighting to get into the kingdom. And they might not have said the words, but they were fighting to be at the center and close to Jesus. They wanted to be in Jesus' line and Jesus' ancestry. So, so what are the greatest blessings that we can have as human beings to be in this kingdom and be closer to Jesus? God's kingdom and God's king are the most valuable gifts that any person can be given. So who they are then in a long line of people who are pressing their way into the kingdom, even though they don't really know what it is. When Jesus comes, he says, now the kingdom is being proclaimed and people are pressing their way into it. And sure enough, he would walk up and down the streets and sinners and tax collectors would be crowding him, trying to get as close as they can to him, reaching for him, trying to get just physical proximity in, just to be near to him because the kingdom of God had come in him. And they didn't understand what he was there to do. They didn't know that he had come to die and pay for sins, that they could have forgiveness in his name, that he'd come to rise from the dead and give eternal life to everyone. They didn't know everything that he was, and just because he was near there, they are reaching for the kingdom. Just like Perez and Zerah reaching for the kingdom, just like Tamar and maybe even Onan trying to reach for the kingdom because this thing is so valuable. And then Jesus can say, now the kingdom is being proclaimed and people are pressing their way into it. He says at one point that the kingdom of God is so valuable, he says like a, like a merchant that searches for pearls, right? And he finds one really valuable pearl. And he just goes and sells everything he has to get that one pearl. It's the pearl of great price, the one that's worth giving up everything for. There it is. What is that? It's the kingdom of God. It's entrance into his kingdom and closeness with his king. He says in another place, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. And a man finds that treasure buried in the field. And it's just in a little box, right? But it's so valuable that he goes and sells everything that he has so he can buy that field and have that treasure. That's how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. Valuable enough that sinners and tax collectors are reaching for Jesus when he comes, even though they don't know quite who he is. Valuable enough that people in this story are trying to reach for the kingdom, even when they don't know what it is. But the the amazing thing is what they don't know, what has not been made known in this story, has been made known to us. We know the name of Perez's greater son. We know that his name is Jesus. And we know what he has come to do. We know that he's come to die and pay for sins and rise from the dead, to to raise from the dead all of his followers. We know the full mystery of the kingdom of God. And what's really incredible 
is that to receive it, we don't have to concoct crazy plans like Tamar did. And we don't have to fight to get out of the womb first. We don't receive the kingdom by striving like they did. No, we receive the kingdom by being given it as a gift. Jesus says, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, So in one way, they're almost a model for us in the way that these people are yearning for the kingdom of God to be theirs. But where they're not a model for us is in the way they're trying to get in by striving. Even in this day, you came into the kingdom by faith in God's promises, right? That's how Abraham received the kingdom. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. And how can you then be a part of God's kingdom, a kingdom so valuable that babies are racing out of the womb to try to get into it? How can you be part of it? One way the scripture explains how you can receive the kingdom as a gift is simply to turn from sin and receive Jesus Christ with joy. We are born traitors against his kingdom, right? Living in our own ways, doing things our way, sensing that there must be a God worth worshiping and there must be a real right and wrong in the universe in our hearts, judging others who don't do what we think is right, but not doing right ourselves, right? Not living in worship of God ourselves. And so we look at that and we say, okay, because Jesus has come to seek me, I'll turn from that. I won't seek that anymore. I'll seek him instead and I'll receive him and all that he is with joy. That's how you become part of the kingdom. You turn from what you were part of, go back to Jesus and receive him with joy. There's a man in the scriptures who shows us what this looks like. His name is Zacchaeus. Uh, He was a tax collector, which means he got rich by cheating people out of taxes. And he was a, a short man, it says. And so when Jesus was coming to town, He was one of those people pressing in, like trying to get near to him. And if if you've been in a crowd like this, you know how it works. The tall people have the advantage, don't they, right? When you're in a big crowd watching a show and you're not as tall as the guy in front of you, like you can't can't see around, right? And this is Zacchaeus' plight. He's a short man. He can't see over all of the people, but he wants to be near Jesus. He wants to see him. And so he climbs up into a tree just so he can see Jesus when he comes. So he is seeking Jesus. He wants into this kingdom. He is reaching for it. Jesus comes and walks by and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree for I'm going to stay in your house tonight. He says, you're seeking me and I see that, but what you don't know is that I'm seeking you too. Come down from the tree. Come, I'm going to stay in your house tonight. And so it says Zacchaeus received him gladly. Right, like I was seeking you. I didn't know you were seeking me. Like, yes, I will receive everything that you are. He takes him into his house. He says, behold, everything that I have cheated from people, I will give back double, and then I'll give half my possessions to the poor. Now, why does he say that? Well, now he has Jesus, and so he doesn't love money anymore, right? So he's like, you can have the money. Like, I have Jesus, and I'm receiving him with joy. This is what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God. All right, you're seeking him, you want him, maybe you don't even know what it is you're seeking. And he says, what you don't know is that I'm seeking you, right? Re- receive me. Turn from whatever it is that you were loving and chasing after, whatever wrong that you loved so much, and receive Jesus with joy like Zacchaeus. That is how we receive the kingdom. And Jesus even says, today salvation has come to this house.
So in their strange way, Tamar, Perez, Zerah show us the great value of the kingdom of God as they reach for it and press their way into it. But we don't receive it the way that they're trying to, not by striving. We receive it by faith in God's promises today revealed in Jesus Christ. So that value of the kingdom of God, right, like receiving it is more valuable than anything else. If we can recover that in our hearts as a church, and if the people of Greenwood could recover that, just just seeing the value of what we have been given, there is a heart change that can wake up sleepy Christians, right? There is a heart change that will move us to seek first the kingdom of heaven. Because it's difficult living in the suburbs where the good life feels attainable, right? Now, you really go after it, and of course, it never quite works out. But it feels like you can earn enough money to get by here and put your kids in good programs and uh, find a good spouse and settle down and have a nice, sweet life together and build a nice house. The American dream feels attainable in a place like this. It always feels just a little bit out of reach, too, and so we wind up chasing after it, chasing after it, wanting a little more leisure and a little more money and a little more stuff, and soon enough, we may know the kingdom of heaven, we may have received the kingdom of heaven, but we're seeking first, we're chasing after that good life, and that's how you get to churches that are making their sermons all about pro tips for life, like how to have a good life. And not even preaching from the Bible. Why can they get away with that? Because a lot of us are just seeking the good life and we just want tips for a good life, right? Not only is it that, but it is a path to worry and anxiety. Because if you're seeking the good life, well, it's never quite attainable. Nobody gets it all. And so you're worried about this and about that. And so Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about those things. The Father knows that you need those things. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and let all those other things be added. Now, what do we need to know in our hearts if we're going to seek first the kingdom of heaven? We need to know how valuable it is, right? We need to know the great thing that we have been given. And so, so what, what would wake Greenwood up from seeking the good life when many of us know what the kingdom is? seeing the value of it, reaching for it the way that the people in this story are reaching for it. If we just consider what we have, we were, we were destined for judgment, right? Forever. Not because God is angry and mean, because we deserved it, right? Because what we had done. And the gift that was given freely to us, if you're a Christian, this describes you, the gift given freely to you was to pull you out of that and give you instead entrance into his kingdom and closeness with his king. So if we could just try to like measure the gap between what we had and what we were given, it just makes our hearts explode, doesn't it? If we set our hearts on that and say, I can't believe he let me in to this kingdom. Well, there's the zeal and there is the fire that can wake us up. Let me ask it to you this way. All the things that you want in your life, uh, whether it's you want your, your, 
relationship with a, with a friend or a boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse to go a certain way, or you want this house or that house or this job or all those things that you want and you're longing for, your whole Amazon wish list, you can just buy it all. If the Lord were to just offer you everything that you're wanting in this life, all the stuff that you're seeking, and you could have it, but then you would die in the course of time, and then you'd cease to exist. That's the end of it. Or the kingdom of heaven given to you freely. Which one's more valuable? Which one would you, would you take? Well, Jesus says, what profit is it if you gain the whole world and you, and you forfeit your soul, right? Now, there's nothing more valuable, no gift you could be given that is greater than free entrance into God's kingdom and closeness with God's king. So it's worth more than the good life. It's worth more than we're chasing after, but it is so easy to lose sight of that prize. So seek first the kingdom. Let the other things be added as like a little additional 1%, but you have been given the kingdom. If the kingdom of God is worth more than the good life we're seeking after, uh, and the good life is good, it's, it's not bad to have a good life, uh, it's also worth more than something that we as a church are seeking together that is also good, something we pray for all the time that we do hope the Lord gives us, but the kingdom itself is worth more, and that is ministry success, the growth we are longing for in our church. Uh, one thing I sensed when I first came here is that we have longed to see these pews full again, right? Because we want people to come to Christ. We want to see the kingdom that we love grow. And we want to be part of a movement of God that is here, right? And it's good that you want that. It's my job to lead you to want that even more than we already do. What can happen, though, is we can want that more than we treasure the kingdom that we already have ourselves, right? And so Jesus actually says this at one point. He sent out the 72, and uh, they went and they preached in all the towns of Israel, and then they came back, and the report they gave him was good. Like, oh, Lord, Master, you will not believe how many people we healed and how many demons we cast out in your name and how many people are following you now. Like, we were a part of a great movement of God. I can't believe you would use us to do this. And Jesus says to them, don't rejoice that you're able to cast out demons in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Right? What's more valuable, right? The fact that he let me in the door in the first place. He's never going to top that, even if I get to be a part of a great movement of God. Now, we talk about that some because we pray for it all the time, and if the Lord gives a great movement like that to us, I want us to be ready for it, and I want us to know that we asked him for it for years, and that's why we have it, and that's why he gave it to us. Another way we can prepare for that is if the day were to come, we need to know that the heart that's right before God looks around, and, and one day you might hear somebody say, wow, isn't it great to have all these people in the doors? Oh, man. And they're right, right? And the godly heart will respond to that and say, well, yeah, and, and the Lord gave it. But to tell you the truth, I still can't believe you let me in the door. Right? Because we don't just rejoice that we get to be part of great things. We rejoice that we have been brought into the kingdom of heaven, being spared the fires of hell and being given heaven. Nothing else he would give us can top that. Yeah, so let's put before us the pearl of great price, the, the kingdom of God. And in fact, that heart that prizes the kingdom we've been given above everything else 
That's the kind of heart that's really ready to be part of a movement like that, right? It's so much easier to share the gospel with other people when your eyes are on the kingdom of God. Then you're not afraid because, oh, I've been given the kingdom. What can be taken from me? Then then you're, you're just beaming with joy because I've been given the kingdom. And so some of us are wondering why we aren't effective as evangelists, why we don't share the gospel more than we do. Some of us aren't effective evangelists because we want for others what we don't prize for ourselves anymore. But if we seek the first, the kingdom of heaven, and we let the other things be added, the other things will fall right into place. So this puts us in a number of places. Some of us, uh, we know our faith is in Jesus Christ, and we have looked around and said, where is the zeal that I want to have? Where is the, the liveliness and vigor and joy in my faith that I want? What will wake me up the way I want to be woken up? What will wake you up is setting your eyes on the kingdom of heaven, the pearl of great price, reaching and yearning for it as much as these people in this story have. Others of us are saying, this is exactly what I've been feeling my whole life. Uh, I love this kingdom. I can't believe I've gotten into this kingdom. And yet there is so much temptation around me pulling me away. And what do we need to do? Resist all those calls that are pulling our hearts away from the kingdom and keep on with a zeal and vigor for faith in Jesus. And there are probably some here in the room who need to turn from sin and receive the kingdom of God in the first place. And so, so this is you. If you're saying, I, I want in, I'm not in, I want in. My call to you is to look to this Jesus who died and rose, died to pay for sins, rose to give eternal life. This Jesus who came to earth to seek and save the lost, so he came to seek you, who says to you, I know you're seeking me, but what you don't know is that I'm seeking you too. Turn to him from sin and receive him with joy. With him comes the kingdom. So turn to him and receive him. Let's pray together.